Okay, good morning and welcome back. Today is Wednesday, September 7, 2022. Yes, time keeps flying along in the last uh, quarter of the year. Uh, this is class 5 of the series Apollonius of Tyana and the Sage. Um, the sage means the true sage, whether we say Apollonius uh, or Yeshua or Gautama or Nityananda. Uh, <clears throat> that's where we start and that's where we will return to, but this is going to be a long series and we're in a long prologue of discussion of the historicity of Jesus and specifically looking at multiple views and we're in chapter one or part one of a book called Apollonius the Nazarene the life and teachings of the unknown world teacher of the first century from R.W. Bernard whose original name is Walter Siegmeister <clears throat> who died in 65, who's credited with um, an integration of hollow earth theory and UFO studies. And on the side, in 1945, wrote Apollonius the Nazarene. And <clears throat> that's very interesting. Uh, part one that we're in the middle of that I will move towards completing today, but I may not be able to, is called The Historical Apollonius versus the Mythical Jesus. And we can see that he's in the camp uh, that believes that there was no historical Jesus, there was only a mythical Jesus, based on the life of the historical Apollonius, whose life was mythologized and partly uh, borrowed from in the formulation of the life of Jesus particularly codified at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century uh, under you know, Emperor Constantine and whoever he brought there. Somebody, I'm going deep into this myself in my own researches and studies for the class, for the series, which is going to be very long, uh, and finding uh, all sorts of interesting things. <laughs> and today I'm going to uh, bring more to you of the uh, interesting perspectives. Uh, but one thing to bear in mind, uh, the formulation of the Gospels in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea, um, in many ways, uh, clearly, would have been only that which was acceptable to those at the Council of Nicaea. <clears throat> Who were those at the Council of Nicaea? I don't know. I haven't gotten to that point of uh, research yet. Who was there? Representatives from which religions, which pagan traditions, which early Christian groups, which, uh, which doctors, no, which uh, organizations were represented there? They would clearly have uh, only allowed the, uh, a compilation or a editing work that resulted in a um, codified gospel uh, selection of texts acceptable to them. And that would mean acceptable to their followers. 
in the different religions or lineages or sects or groups that they represented. That's interesting. And <clears throat> before I go back to the middle of part one of Apollonius of Nazarene or R.W. Bernard's perspective that there was no historical Jesus, there's only a mythical, and there was uh, a historical Apollonius uh, whose life was borrowed from in a compositing at Council of Nicaea, dot, dot, dot. Uh, there's some other <laughs> things I found along the way, along the week, uh, particularly a large trove or tro uh, collection of documents written by a man named Michael Lockwood, whose uh, the title of this page is The Unknown Buddha of Christianity. And the title of his book, which I'm going to get into later, not today, maybe months down the line or something, called The Unknown Buddha of Christianity, The Crypto-Buddhism <clears throat> Crypto of the Essenes, Teraputae and Qumranites, meaning those of Qumran, those called the Teraputae, Therapeutics, who were Essenes, who <clears throat> uh, taught, he says, a crypto-Buddhism. Okay. And this was written <laughs> in um, 2019. And so he has all sorts of scholarship at hand over the last 2,000 years that he, um, he basically selected documents of various scholars on the historicity of Jesus. He has no mention of Apollonius at all, <clears throat> which is strange. And it comes from Chennai. It comes from Madras, India. <laughs> it comes from an organization called Tambaram Research Associates in Tambaram, Chennai, India, 2019. Uh, Michael Lockwood. And uh, there are a couple of interesting quotes I just want to bring out right at the start. The first one I was very happy is on page six. It's a PDF available on this page, Unknown Buddha of Christianity. Um, they are slaves who dare not be in the right with two or three. What? Quoted from James Russell Lowell's poem, Stanzas on Freedom, and adopted as a motto by the Madras Christian College in South India. Uh -huh. So this this is a Western, you know, <laughs> practitioner of yoga probably, and a scholar, or scholarly, who's in South India, who realizes the value of putting multiple traditions together, thus the basis of him talking about Christianity as a branch, a crypto-branch of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And uh, scholars of Alexandria, the, the, the library of Alexandria before burning down, Right? What was happening with early Christianity before the Council of Nicaea? And his quote here again, they are slaves who dare not be in the right with two or three. And so if you're not in the right with two or three traditions of scholarship or truth, right, sat dhamma, right, sat chit, or uh, sat, uh, dhamma teachings, right, like Buddha Dasa said, those who know dhamma know there are no religions. There's just truth. And uh, if you're not in the right with two or three, meaning rightly drawing from finding truth in multiple traditions, you're slave. You're slave to the political coercion 
of the single tradition uh, that you embrace while rejecting all others. If one does embrace one tradition, including Buddhism, including Christianity, including academia, academic, you know, classical, classicist approaches, um, there's a problem. Um, because one becomes a, a company man, a yes man, and has a real difficulty. One is in the wrong if one excludes universal truths found in multiple traditions, or in other traditions than one's favorite tradition. One may white fine have a favorite tradition. I have mine, you have yours. But um, there's a problem when we're not in the right with two or three. So they are slaves who dare not be in the right with two or three. What a strange phrase. And then above that is a quote attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson. If the right theory should ever be discovered, we shall know it by this token, that it will solve many riddles. If the right theory should ever be discovered, we shall know it by this token, that it will solve many riddles. And... Uh, he, Michael Lockwood, 2019, says, this book, meaning this book called Unknown Buddha of Christianity, it continues my attempt to get a clearer picture of the history of the origins of Christianity through the examination of radical, groundbreaking works of some less enthralled researchers who most often are positioned outside the institutionally accredited in-groups. And... Before that, page three, he's saying, we find widespread scoffing at researchers in this field who operate outside the boundaries set by established academic institutions and who may lack degree qualifications or membership in relevant departments or learned bodies, peer review, and so forth. And so this is of research, researchers or students specializing in the study of the origins of Christianity. Uh, there were... There have been uh, many parties to the to the issue here. Parties to the case. Um, the subtitle of this, the alternate title of the series here: Apollonius of Tyana and Dogs in the Fight. Apollonius of Tyana, and a study of human pride and dishonesty. Apollonius of Tyana, and the um, history of um, the war of opinion regarding the historicity of Jesus. And one, one scholar, one person writing, I read this phrase, the war of opinion. It's a war of opinion been raging for 2,000 years. And there's a problem with that. Um, and the only way to, you know, I'm not, in, I'm not a party to the conflict. I don't really have a dog in the fight. Uh, I do value truth. I love truth as much as I can love, and I want to find uh, what seems to be true. But it seems as well that certainty is not possible, actually. And uh, those who believe certainty is possible where it's not possible, I mean, you may think it's possible, or some people do, uh, those who want to call themselves experts, <laughs> those who believe they found certainty, commonly are mistaken. Certainty, you know, when Ross said understanding is not of this density, like we said before, that sort of uh, supports, that, that, that goes naturally to the correlate. Uh, certainty is also not of this density. 
Understanding is not of your density, and certainty as well. This is not a dimension of knowing, Ra said. It is a dimension at best of um, unconditional acceptance or love. We're here to learn the ways of love, not certainty by understanding and uh, the height of wisdom. And uh, this discussion of Apollonius and Yeshua and historicity and myth-making and uh, the, the parties who all have dogs in the fight uh, shows the limits of uh, understanding and certainty, um, not only to this issue, but in general. And there's biases all over the place. And so getting right with two or three is an eclectic approach, a synthetic approach. I'm looking at etymology of eclectic. Ek is out and lego is choose. To choose from out of multiple traditions. Synthetic as together or sin, sun thesis, putting together, putting together uh, multiple traditions. Uh, the, the scholar, the, the, the people like R.W. Bernard or Walter Sigmeister, as well as uh, even uh, so-called contactee, uh, oh, I forgot his name, Alex Collier, <laughs> who had something to say about this too that the, the Andromedans told him that the story of Jesus is fraudulent as well. And uh, Channel, R, you know, R.W., not R.W., but J.R. Roberts or something, writing a book in the 1890s called Antiquity Unveiled, also writing extensively of how, in his view, uh, I mean, it's all claiming to be channeled. <laughs> so channeled work from 130 years ago. Also, in, his, in the camp of Apollonius' historical and Jesus, the story of Jesus is a myth, borrowed partly from Apollonius. Um, just because the guy is channeling doesn't mean it's untrue. Just because he's mistaken thinking he's channeling, just because he's intending to cover his own ass, calling it channeling when it never is, and he even knows it isn't, perhaps, that still doesn't mean there's no truth there. There still can be truth in somebody who falsely presents himself. They still may be saying some truth. Mm. How many people can even handle that? A person who's falsely self-representing may actually present some truth. Like J.R. Roberts writing Antiquity or channeling, claiming to channel uh, Demas, <laughs> the, the, you know, cha- claiming to channel a dozen or three dozen personages in the, uh, in the last 2,000 years, or 50 of them. The book is kind of crazy. Uh, just because even if he is falsely self-representing doesn't mean what he's saying is all false. It's that crazy. If you want truth, I think you have to have a very uh, big mind and a very strong fire or or fire to digest. So let's get back into uh, chapter one of Apollonius, uh, the Nazarene, uh, historical Apollonius versus mythical Jesus. I will try to restrain myself a bit uh, to, in the interest of time and uh, movement. So we're at the beginning of it, and of course we know his view that um, there was no historical Jesus. There wasn't any. That's his view. Okay. He said that the original Gospels were rewritten and altered at the Council of Nicaea is indicated by the following statement by Archdeacon Wilberforce. 
And the, this notion of indicated, the, the, the phrase used, it's indicated by. Good, not proven by. It's indicated by. Little words mean a lot. Actually, little words mean a lot. Or single and several words may mean a lot. Because there are a lot of people who have, we commonly don't have tight, logical, rational process. Tight, logical, rational process cares about little words. It's indicated, excuse me, it's indicated by, it's not proven by. Important. So, okay, Archdeacon Wilberforce wrote, quote, and, and some of these sources that, that R.W. Bernard brings in are heavily shot down by others, you know? Meanwhile, that doesn't mean there's no truth there. So, Mr. Wilberforce wrote, quote, Some are not aware that after the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325, the manuscripts of the New Testament were considerably tampered with. Professor Nestle, in his, and th- this is this is all works from the, you know, early 20th century and 19th century. Professor Nestle, in his introduction to textual criticism of the Greek Testament, tells us that certain scholars called correctores, correctors, were appointed by the ecclesiastical authorities and actually commissioned to correct the text of the Scripture in the interest of what was considered orthodoxy. And as I said, what was what the output of Nicaea, and there were a couple of other councils, the output of those councils being now the new orthodoxical uh, Christian doctrine or collection of doctrines and, and views, including the history or the story of Jesus, would have been an orthodoxical, would have been doctrines uh, that were acceptable only to the people there <laughs> and their followers. So whoever was there uh, ordered the correctores or correctors to correct in line with what they w- found acceptable, and everything else went out. Coming on, commenting on the statement, Reverend G.S. Usley in his Gospel of the Holy Twelve. Also, again, all these sources from R.W. Bernard are shot down by scholars or criticized. Meanwhile, uh, scholars are criticized by each other too. <laughs> scholars are at each other's throats or at least uh, in serious disagreement too. You can see it in the book, um, The Buddha, uh, Buddha of Christianity, or you know, crypto, crypto-Buddhism in, in Christianity. He brings lots of scholarly reports. And uh, just because somebody's outside the fold of the scholarly community uh, doesn't mean there's no truth, obviously. Uh, however, <laughs> scholars themselves are uh, at odds with each other. And so, okay, um, there's a whole lot of argumentation going on. Who, who can we trust? Well, you better trust yourself. And you better make your mind clear so that you can trust the mind. But uh, certainty is not much available. And, and uh, attachment to certainty is itself a problem. Meaning attachment to the longing for certainty. I mean, I want certainty too. But I, I think rightly recognize that it's pretty much impossible. Um, but one can get close or have some certainty without fully proven. Anyway, Reverend G.S. G.J. Usley wrote, What these correctores did was to cut out of the Gospels with minute care 
certain teachings of our Lord, <clears throat> or teachings from other Gospels, right? Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or the, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter or something. Certain Gnostic and Essene tracts, which they did not propose to follow. So it's not even certain teachings of our Lord. <laughs> it's certain teachings of the early Christian communities in the first several centuries which those at the Council of Nicaea didn't propose to follow, namely, and so here you get this angle of vegetarianism, namely, those against eating of flesh and talking, taking of strong drink and everything which might serve as an argument against flesh eating, such as the accounts of our Lord's interference on several occasions to save animals from ill treatment, or to save animals. Some of the writing here is mistaken. There's some typos. So there's a one of the parties with dogs in the fight <clears throat> um, is a vegetarian, those of vegetarianism. R.W. Bernard was there. Some other um, New Age-related um, authors are also of the view that the Council of Nicaea, I mean, actually, um, R.W. Bernard himself and uh, some others are of the view that vegetarianism was uh, the proponent su support for vegetarianism was cut out at the Council of Nicaea, cut out meaning uh, texts supporting vegetarianism or in the life story of Yeshua being vegetarian against wine and alcohol, that they were taken out, um, they were part of what was uh, edited and removed. Um, maybe. I don't know. The Essenes certainly were Pythagor Neo Pythagoreans. Pythagoreans were vegetarian. Apollonius was. So, maybe. He goes on. There's evidence to indicate that not only were the original doctrines of early Essene Christianity radically changed at Council of Nicaea and replaced by others entirely different, but that the man whose life was embodiment of the original doctrines was likewise replaced by another man who exemplified the new doctrines. That's the idea that uh, <clears throat> the original doctrines that were cut out were, some of them were associated with real teachings of uh, Neo-Pythagorean Apollonius, replaced or what was taken from his life uh, in the fashioning of the story of Yeshua um, excluded um, his vegetarianism or you know rejection of alcohol, as the Buddhist monks see the Buddhist monks were not vegetarian, but they certainly I think alcohol was not <laughs> drunk in the sangha. So and then we talk about the the unknown Buddha or the Buddha of Christianity, uh, the interface between Hindu and Buddhist teachings in early Christianity pre-Council of Nicaea. That's a whole story, and that may be related, where there was a vegetarian tendencies supported by the Essenes and some of the Gnostic groups and Neopythagoreans that was excluded um, at Council of Nicaea, and some of those early Christian, you know, Essene and Gnostic groups may well have been influenced from India not particularly Buddhism or Buddhism and Hinduism. All right. So then R.W. Bernard, who's also pushing the view of vegetarianism, said the name of the second man who was not a vegetarian and didn't prohibit killing of animals was Jesus Christ, who was put in the place of Apollonius of Tiana, 
the historical world teacher of the first century. That's his view. It may be so. <laughs> Who can say? So he goes on. The first act of the church fathers, after they created their new religion and its messiah, neither of which existed previously or existed in the same form, was to burn all books they could lay their hands on, especially those written to the, during the first few centuries, which made no mention of Jesus and which referred to Apollonius as the spiritual leader of the first century, realizing as they did that such books, if not destroyed, constituted a dangerous menace to the survival of their deception. It was for this reason that the churchmen took such great pains to burn ancient libraries, including the famous Alexandrian Library, with 400,000 volumes, burnt to the ground by Edict of Theodosius, when a Christian mob destroyed the Serapium, where the scrolls and manuscripts were kept. So you have emperors persecuting early Christians, pre-council, you know, in the 3rd century, 2nd century, 1st century, I guess. I'm not perfect on all this scholarship. But pre-Nicaea, pre-co-optation of early Christianity to be of the state religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, you have vicious, uh, you know, persecution of, of early Christians, who must, many of which were Essenes and uh, Gnostics, or something like that. Then, when the religion uh, is modified and orthodox, orthodoxified and taken to the bosom of uh, Roman state power, you have Christians burning down a library uh -huh, and persecuting uh, pagans, so-called, and wrecking temples, uh, pagan temples. So, okie dokie, uh, looks like a bunch of Martians to me. However, he said, the churchmen failed to their purpose, for prior to its burning, which they foresaw, librarians of the Alexandrian Library had secretly removed from it some of the most precious volumes which they carried eastward for safety. And this is a view that you'll see in a number of New Age texts. Maybe true. <laughs> anything could be, or all sorts of things could be. Maybe not anything, but okay. So let's just, I'll, I'll try not to keep saying that, but uh, it's it. We have a, a great amount of data uh, to put. One must expand the platform of the middle folder, the middle field of could be, maybe. There is, I'm quite sure it's true, and I'm quite sure it's false, and in the middle, the great middle field platform is, I'm not quite sure yet, or let's see, it could be. It could be, it may not be. Now, this is where we start the new for today. He wrote, Among the works which were thus saved from flames of the Alexandrian library, the one, is, one which has created the most widespread and long-continued discussion was Life of Apollonius of Tyana, Vita Apolloni, written by Flavius Philostratus at beginning of 3rd century AD, 221 or so. As if by irony or fate, this book, uh, which of all books burnt in the Alexandria Library, was one of the most dangerous, perhaps, was preserved down through the centuries, resisting all attempts to destroy it. And this is the connection to Baha'i, where some people have said that this 
book Vita Apollonii was taken by to Arab sources, right? From Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt, right? Took it where? Took it east, took it west. Well, they might have taken it to Arab lands uh, west of Alexandria. They may have ended up moving uh, to Persian lands east of Alexandria later too. So, the book uh, was preserved down through the centuries, resisting all attempts to destroy it. The reason, and that is an interesting point, right? <laughs> we, we, this has arose, aroused, aroused tremendous ire, hatred, rage from Christian sources, defenders over the centuries. This book, Vita Apolloni. So, if it's so full of shit, garbage, it's surprising that it would arouse such ire and rage. That is interesting. So, the reason, he said, the reason why the book was so much dreaded by churchmen was because, while it made no mention whatsoever of the existence of Jesus or Christianity, it presented Apollonius of Tiana as the universally acclaimed world teacher of the first century, reverenced from one end of the Roman Empire to the other by everyone, from the lowest slave to the emperor himself. I think somewhere it was written that like a dozen, two dozen temples were dedicated to Apollonius. Mm-hmm. He goes on, no book ever written has aroused such, has aroused by heated argument over a longer period of time than this biography by Philostratus. You can say no book ever written has aroused the degree of heated, uh, enraged argument over a longer period than this biography. From the earliest centuries of our era, when he wrote Hercules, he means Heracles, and Eusebius first started it, meaning it was an argument, and that there's, it's all very complicated, a fellow named Heracles, who um, soon after Vita Apolloni, it seems, um, directly said there was no Jesus Christ and it was only Apollonia. So <laughs> some of these early New Age, some of the New Age people may have been, uh, had a past life, uh, somebody was uh, Heracles, and so Eusebius' church father was against that, and him, and uh, goes on and on. From the early from the early centuries of our era, meaning 1700, 1600 years ago, when Her- Heracles and Eusebius first started at it, until the days of Blount, Voltaire, and the Deists, the controversy raged unabated. For Philostratus, in his book, described a character born in the very year of the birth of Christ, who, in every respect, was equal, if not superior, of the Christian Messiah. The figure of the story. W.B. Wallace, writing in, quote, The Apollonius of Philostratus, calls the biography, quote, a pagan counterblast to the Gospel of Galilee, representing representing a Greek savior as an alternative to the Semitic one. 1902. Furthermore, the main events in the lives of both men, quote, both men, were so closely parallel that the reader cannot help but conclude that if Jesus is not a fictitious imitation of Apollonius, then Apollonius must be an imitation of him, since it would be highly improbable for two such similar men to have been born the same year and to have such similar biographies. And that's, you know, one of the principles here. Um, those who are enraged say Apollonius is a fictional imitation of Yeshua. 
those who argue against them say Jesus is a fictional imitation of Apollonius. Um, there's a source that I'd like to get to later, one of the many, many, uh, from Five Seasons Medicine called The Messiahs of Judea. The guy asks unbelievable number of questions and brings in all sorts of stuff. Uh, <laughs> and so there, was, there were many messiahs in Judea, or there were many um, miracle workers as well. And, you know, what, what many Christians, uh, Jewish, you know, Judeo-Christian folks, take as their um, un- indisputable doctrines uh, are quite amazing matters, right? Jesus of bir- virgin birth. Moses parting the Red Sea. If that's put into the biography of a pagan or Apollonius or somebody, it's very easy for people to just, you know, scholars and skeptics and church-oriented defenders, church defenders. Uh, they would say yeah, it's just pagan hyperbole and um, it's exaggeration. It, these are rank lies or, or wonder-working. It's impossible. It's impossible, or it's the work of demons. Meanwhile, um, there's some pretty extraordinary claims in the Old Testament and the New for Yeshua and other Jewish Christian characters, personages, doing miraculous works. (laughs) Whose miraculous works um, are not... um, are, are not questionable. Are they all questionable? Who can say? You can say. So, on the one hand, uh, church-oriented people will uh, say uh, Apollonius may well have done those, quote, magical works, miracle works, wonder works, but he was uh, working with demons, but Jesus did similar works, uh, and he was inspired by God. Okay, that's a view. That's an opinion. Um, no proof. And then you get this whole notion of dogs in the fight, and uh, I don't want to believe it. The, the, the pernicious influence of ambition and emotion and pride in scholarship in belief, uh, how much belief is associated with uh, emotion and emotional need and social ambition and damaged self-esteem and thus pride. Pride from damaged self-esteem, social ambition from damaged self-esteem, emotionalism from damaged self-esteem, <laughs> uh, infiltrating, influencing belief. Influencing opinion, influencing view. It's all over the place. In the New Age, too. And in the scholarship, too. And in the skeptic community, too. So you've got nihilists, skeptics, you know, (laughs) uh, atheists who are emotionally driven. Church oriented people, emotionally driven. Buddhists, sometimes emotionally driven. UFO oriented people, emotionally driven or proud, or ambitious, or dishonest, or 
you know, um, unwilling to realize how little they know or unreally, unwilling to admit uncertainty all over the place. So, Apollonisi of Tyana and a study of uh, earth-human epistemology or historical epis- religious epistemology or uh, how dishonest people can be or how little certainty there can be. <laughs> how little certainty there is. These are not unimportant points here, actually. So, okay, then we have W.B. Wallace saying that um, Philostratus wrote this, uh, the Vita Apolloni was a pagan counterblast to the Gospel of Galilee. Okay. F.A. Campbell writes, the birth of Apollonius is assigned to the year 4 B.C., but as everybody knows, the current computation of the beginning of the Christian era is incorrect. And the first year of our Lord ought to be dated four or five years earlier. That's 4 BC. Four years before uh, C or 0. If the Apollonian and Christian nativities, birth stories, both belong to the same year, 4 BC, the coincidence is entitled the more attention that it has received. (laughs) Indeed, but there are some vested interests who don't want to uh, pay it rightful attention. Thankful Tyana, like ungrateful Nazareth, meaning the town of Tyana versus Nazareth, had nursed a prophet of blameless life, miraculous power, superabundant loving kindness, and heroic virtue. Both Apollonius of Tyana and Jesus of Nazareth were born in the same lustrum, if not the same year, if there even are two. Both Tyana's babe and Bethlehem's were said to have sprung from a divine father and human mother. Same story. Both of these holy ones drew their first breath amid gracious portents and supernatural singings. Same story. Nor were these the only parallels in the memoirs of the Tyanean Tyanean and the Nazarene. So F.A. Campbell, whenever that was, or whoever that was, whenever he wrote, mid-20th century, perhaps. You know, there were many messiahs or uh, magi um, in Judea. Were they two who had the same uh, circumstances of birth? That's not really likely, actually. And so what's more likely is that somebody borrowed from somebody or both borrowed, as both stories borrowed. The story of Yeshua and the story of Apollonius are both composite borrowings. That's very possible. And then he said, finally, Orthodox Christians had been accustomed to affirm boldly the finality of Mary's son, but like a bolt from the blue, here was Philostratus opposing himself to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and offering an alternative Messiah. It's actually not true that, that Philostratus considered him a Messiah. I believe, I, I'm not sure there was any reference to Yeshua or Jesus Christ in Vita Apolloni. He was not actually counter-blasting Philostratus. I think that he was actually just writing this for Julia Domna and uh, her husband and the community. So (laughs) there's uh, much to be disputed here. He goes on, also, this is R.W. Bernard, also it's strange that, though they were both supposed to be the greatest men of their age, they didn't know of each other's existence. Mm -hmm. And since there's absolutely authentic historical evidence of the existence of Apollonius, but not a shred of genuine proof of the existence of Jesus... That's, of course, disputed. 
we must conclude that if one of these figures is fictitious and, they, and in imitation of the other, it is Jesus who is the fiction and Apollonius the historical personage. That's his view. It may be so. And it may not be. Uh, this point of no shred of genuine proof of the existence of Jesus, well, actually, there's no proof of the existence of Apollonius either. So he's, he gets sloppy too. We can all be sloppy. You know, human epistemology is sloppy because we're in the veil, because of the veiling. Understanding really is not, understanding and certainty really are not of this density and our mind. So he's saying there's, there's, you see, it's in fact, it's a specious argument or comparison. So he's tricky too. He said there's absolutely authentic historical evidence of the existence of Apollonius. Okay, so absolutely authentic, that's true. There is historical evidence. But no proof of Jesus. Uh-huh. Is there proof of Apollonius? No. I don't think so. No. Is there evidence of the existence of Jesus? Yeah, there is. Yeah. So he's arguing that there's evidence of Apollonius but no proof of Jesus. See? Right? Tricky, tricky. So that's why he changed his name all the time. If he was not tricky, he wouldn't have changed his name, even though he's a good guy. Mr. Friend, Mr. Walter. So that that's called, um, there's some name for it, but th- this is uh, setting a, an argument with two different levels of, um, uh, of uh, measurement. There's absolutely authentic historical evidence of Apollonius. There seems to be, yes, absolutely, there's evidence. And then there's no proof of Jesus. Oh, that's true. But there's no proof of Apollonius either, and there is also evidence of Jesus. So you see how one must be careful? Uh-huh. Okay, so then uh, somebody named Zendorf, Zendorf writes, author after author, volume after volume, of the life of Christ may appear until the archives of the universe are filled, and yet all we have of the life of Jesus is to be found in Matthew's Gospel. Not a single person's specially associated with Jesus, impinges history. This is maybe not true also, where there's a page, I can't get into it now, but historical evidence for Jesus of Nazareth by a, by a guy named Mark Eastman. Mark Eastman is <laughs> a little bit of a dubious character also, not only interested in UFOs, but kind of looks very commercial. He's not like a, really a scholar, actually. He went to like a... University of San Diego, you know, not, not even a university, something. So, meanwhile, he's bringing in sources that others have brought in. References to Jesus in Flavius Josephus, uh, which is um, first century Jew- son of a Jewish priest, went to Rome. Flavius Josephus, there seems to be a, met- a reference, however... There's a lot of de- there's some doubt about that that it wasn't a Christian insertion later. Mm-hmm. Then there's there are others. Um, Thalus, Thalus, first century, middle of first century CE, uh, historical events ro- of the Roman Empire. But actually, it's not Thalus. It's <laughs> Julius Africanus in the 3rd century, writing about the writings of Talus in the 1st century. Uh-huh. So you've got somebody in the 3rd century referring to something in the 1st century 
uh, called Thales, someone. So it's not Thales in the first century writing. It's Julius Africanus in the third century writing about Thales, what he wrote. Okay. So you see, and he's not even writing about Jesus. He's writing about darkness over the land in the sixth hour till the ninth hour. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of qualification. These guys very qualify themselves, and so <laughs> it's um, while Mr. Eastman says Josephus Flavius Josephus verifies that Jesus was verifies that Jesus was an historical figure crucified by Pontius Pilate that had a great follower. Had a great following, and in fact, that's one of the main historical sources utilized by Christians and those who are on the side have the the Christian dog in the fight, or or have that are in that camp, party to the conflict. That the Flavius Josephus antiquities source shows, yes, indeed, there was a real Jesus, and this is what he did, and he was crucified. Actually. Uh, there's there's a lot of qualification to it. So while Eastman says that Josephus says that in Josephus, Flavius Josephus, you have uh, an incredibly valuable historical reference to Jesus of, Na- of Nazareth, incredibly valuable because it's one of the only that there are that there is. But then he starts to backtrack and says, needless to say. Needless to say, this passage is a very controversial passage. Critics have claimed it's a Christian insertion later. However, there's strong evidence that it was in the original. That doesn't sound very strong. However, there's strong evidence. So on the one hand, he says it's an incredibly valuable historical reference, mainly because there are not so many. There there are nearly no others historical reference to Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, of historians of the time or the first couple of centuries. Then he says critics have claimed it was a Christian insertion, but there's strong evidence that it wasn't the original, (laughs) meaning there's evidence that it isn't. It was quoted by the early church fathers, such as Eusebius, in the 4th century. Uh So that means it was there in the 1st century? No. And then there's some other comments, like he was the Messiah in it. It's lawful to call him a man. Opponents argue it's very unlikely he, Flavius Josephus, would ever say these things of Jesus. Must, and that's true. There are certain, certain statements made in Flavius Josephus about Jesus, so-called, that don't sound right to me, too. And he says, most opponents argue... Therefore, opponents argue it's very unlikely he, Flavius Josephus, would ever say these things of Jesus. Most historians do, however, so there's lots of backtracking. Most historians, however, do, meaning other ones don't, believe that the reference to Jesus being, quote, a wise man, doer of wonderful works, and being crucified are valid portions of the original. <laughs> so there's a real argument about this passage, even, in Josephus, about Jesus. Did it, was it a later Christian insertion? Are some portions of the passage, that's hmm? a passage with portions. Hmm. Some portions are early, some portions are late. Uh-huh. Some portions he wrote, some portions were added or modified later. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, meanwhile, there's a 4th century Arabic version 
of Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, which contains this that they're calling a testimonium. So the Christian Church called this the, you know, Josephus's testimonium, his testimony. Meanwhile, there's scholars arguing that some portions of the passage were put in later and taken out and added. Uh -huh. So is this, how incredibly valuable is this? Then in the Arabic version, or one version, one Arabic version, instead of saying, quote, he was the Christ, which is what one version, or the, the, the disputed version of the passage in Flavius Josephus says, he was the Christ. I don't think Flavius Josephus would say such a thing. A Jewish fellow writing for the Romans would say he was the Christ? Really? I don't think so. That's why the, the, there's, a, there's some serious holes here. But instead of saying he was the Christ in the disputed portion of the passage, the Arabic version or a Arabic version says he was the, he was so called the Christ. That seems more reasonable from a, a historian in the employ of non Christians. And so, okay, then the you know so there's a Jew, Jerusalem academic press Arabic version of the testimonium. Uh, and then, and then Eastman says, this very ancient copy of the Antiquities increases significantly the reliability that Josephus did, in fact, make historical reference to. Uh, <laughs> it's very weak. It's very weak. Uh, he was perhaps the Messiah. And then he says, finally, this version confirms that Jesus was of excellent character, that he gathered many disciples and Christians were still in existence at the time. Uh it's very, um, there's a lot of doubt. There's, this is very disputable. So even Flavius Josephus, his reference was, uh, is uh, under much dispute. And in fact, it's already been probably well established by some scholars or people who do, you know, have burrowed into the depths of scholarship of the testimonium that some portions of the passage were later Christian insertion, and some poor other portions of the passage were not considered to be. Ah. So, you know, historical uh, human dishonesty is rife with paucity of honesty. This is a dishonest race. They're not committed to honesty. I mean, am I? I don't know. Just judge for yourself. But it seems to me where ambition and so-called ego, which is called low self-esteem, which is pride, where pride and low self-esteem, low self-esteem based pride and ambition are in play. Um, commitment to truth is um, diluted, is deficient, is damaged, is not, um, is not job number one. Job number one is growing, keeping, and gaining power. Growing, keeping, and gaining power. Most of the people involved in places, positions, and organizations of power are very involved in growing, keeping, and gaining power, or gaining, growing, keeping, or gaining, keeping, growing. Gaining, keeping, growing power is the primary work of those in positions of power, because otherwise they're going to be out of power. Most people in power don't want to be out of power, nearly none, and in general, when the crossroads come, they um, take the silver, <laughs> not the lead. So, okay, 
Um, he said, Chendorf uh, sounds Russian. Not a single person specifically associated with Jesus impinges on history. Maybe. In Taylor's Died- Diegesis, Diegesis, 1829, we read, quote, We've investigated the claims of every document possessing a plausible claim to be investigated, which history has preserved of the transactions of the first century, long-winded in the 19th century, and not so much a single passage purporting to have been written at any time within the first hundred years can be produced to show the existence of such a man as Jesus Christ or of such a set of men as could be accounted to be his disciples. So this is in 1829, Oakham, England. I'm sure that guy got a lot of trouble for that. Taylor. Uh, Okay, so he's saying... In the first century, there's nothing. Now, there is that passage from Flavius Josephus. What about that? Don't know. Then, commenting on this statement by Taylor, J.M. Roberts, in Antiquity Unveiled, 1892, channeling 50 people from the ancient world, he said, I think the channeling is a cover for the fact that he just, for the fact that he's basically presenting what he wants to say, which may be true under guise of uh, channeling the spirits. So, Mr. Roberts wrote, On the other hand, we have abundant proof that Jesus Christ is founded on the known life of Apollonius of Tiana, the earthly earthly existence of whom has never been questioned, maybe, to which is added passages from the lives of various personages and teachings concerning the mythical gods of other lands. And so this is the view that the the, the Nicene uh, life of Yeshua, you know, Vita Yeshu, Yesu or Jesse, the life of Yesu, um, if it is considered, for those who consider it a composite of Nicaea, it's a composite not only from the life of, of, of Vita Apolloni, it's a composite brought in with elements of others, too. So he writes, that's J.R. Roberts' view, uh, that the Prometheus of the Greeks was the character which suggested crucifixion, also crucifixion of Krishna in Christocyte traditions. I didn't know that Krishna was crucified. This is 1890s, huh? The Eleusinian mysteries suggested the Last Supper. These together with doctrines of ancient sun worship. Yes, the sun and the twelve. Right? The sun in the middle, the twelve houses or signs, the the sun, S-O-N, S-U-N, and twelve disciples. So Eleusinian mysteries suggested Last Supper. These, together with doctrines of ancient sun worship, were gathered and represented to be a history of the events connected with the life of the Christian Jesus. Prometheus on the crag, suffering for the good of mankind, suggests Jesus on the cross, changing Prometheus for Jesus and the Scythian crag for the cross. But uh, there was crucifixion in Roman times, no? In the first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus is given as the 28th generation from David down through Joseph to Christ. In the third chapter of Luke, the same genealogy is given as being 43rd generation from Christ through Joseph to David. So is he 28? Is he 43? This is a remarkable oversight on the part of the translators, or compilers, or correctores, for if there was anything they could agree on, it is in regard to the descent of Christ. I don't know what that, I don't know how scholars look at that. All the Christians that have ever lived or will ever live will find their ideal Jesus but a phantom, a myth. 
They can chase it as a child would a butterfly through a meadow on a summer's afternoon, and it will elude their grasp. The Christian Jesus is nothing more than the Krishna of the Hindus. Okay. So, the, you know, that their similarities doesn't mean, doesn't prove uh, the name Krishna, Christ, the Christos Greek, uh, was that word derived from Sanskrit? Sanskrit is older than Greek, obviously. Sanskrit, you know, is like 4,000 years old, and Greek is what? 3,000 years old? Something like that, maybe? Ancient Greek? So, something. I'm, I'm not, I don't know everything, so or anything. So, But it seems to me that Sanskrit is older than Greek. So that the word Christos, uh, Greek, uh, may etymologically be derived from Chris, that was the etymological root of the word Krishna, the character Krishna, doesn't mean actually that the whole story is borrowed from Krishna, or the hagiography of the god Krishna, of course not. Uh, perhaps the word, you know, Christos, Christ, Chris, um, had it, it, the same meaning was applied to you know the real Jesus as the real Krishna, or the composite mythical Jesus as the composite mythical Krishna. Who can say? I don't know. So, but there's clearly a linkage there with the same word. But it doesn't mean that that's a borrowing. That 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 the story, the biographies were, that the Jesus's biography was borrowed from Krishna per se. You'd have to look into all that. He goes on, okay, no contemporary writers who lived at the time when Jesus was is supposed to have lived make mention of him. And here's his view. Though forged allusions to Jesus occur in the books of Livy and Josephus, and that's back to this point of Josephus, in his, quote, History of the Jews, written in the first century, at a time when Jesus would have enjoyed greatest popularity among the Jews if he had existed, though pages and pages are devoted to persons of no importance whatsoever, and who would have been forgotten forever had not Josephus mentioned them? There's not a single mention of Jesus in the original edition. Uh-huh. Now, is there available an original edition of History of the Jews, Flavius Josephus, in the first century versus the versions that were uh, compiled or put together in the third and fourth century? I don't know. So he's uh, kind of wiggling out of what Eastman says is a most valuable historical reference to Jesus in Flavius Josephus. He's saying, no, uh, there's no mention of Jesus in the original edition. So Eastman's uh, valuable, most valuable historical reference in Flavius Josephus is not from the original edition. Okay. Then, therefore, there's that uh, claim, you know, the uh, dispute and the assertion that it's a later Christian insertion. But uh, does uh, Mr. Bernard have any access to the original edition? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But it's very likely that, that, you know, texts were changed and changed and changed. Just like the Arabic shows a different wording, not he was called the Christ, which really doesn't fit with, I think, Flavius Josephus. I think they overplayed their hand there, whoever did, in fact, modify Flavius Josephus' testimonium to say he was a Christ, 
I mean, really, I do not think that Flavius Josephus would have written that. So that's, uh, somebody got a little too uh, ambitious. And some correctore was a little, you know, just said, do it, man, just just do it. He said to the scribe, the guy said, all right, whatever, but it don't. It doesn't sound right. He said, do it. And they did it and said, so the later, which may well be a later insertion called, or in that text call, that, that is the phrase, he was called the Christ. He was a Christ. That is not around in the Arab version. So the Arab, that Arabic version, <laughs> who changed that? Or who changed what? Uh, if there are two versions, everybody's changing versions. <laughs> Every time somebody works on a document, um, we can't even presume they have good faith or goodwill. <laughs> they just willy-nilly change according to the demands of the whoever's paying them. Uh-huh. So that there are so many versions and so many things have changed and that there are multiple versions of the same text, so it seems with significant changes, just shows how uh, unreliable the whole thing is, or dishonest the scribes are, or the compilings. No? Then he brings up, and this will be close to where we end, Edmund Zekali, who was totally shot down by others as a total fraud, which doesn't mean it's a fraud, or it means that it's a fraud that may have some truth in it. <laughs> so he's bringing in people that uh, scholars and Christian Christian researchers and scholars and classicists think are complete, you know, UFO fruitcakes. But uh, true or not, I don't know. UFO fruitcake, like me. So on this point, he refers to Edmund Sekely in his, quote, Origin of Christianity. So everybody's weighed in on this. This is sort of the punishment to Christianity. Uh, is that everybody and their uh, uncle and their brother-in-law has something to say about life of uh, Apollonius and the historicity of Jesus. They're attacked. I mean, it actually seems from this discussion of the unknown Buddha, Michael Lockwood, that there's a heck of a lot of scholarship now, because he wrote in 2019, uh, there's a lot of scholarship that has very serious uh uh, evidence against the historicity of Jesus, and again, and in favor of, or strong evidence of um, real monkey monkey business <laughs> with textu- textual uh, corrections and editings and deletions and additions and manipulations over the centuries. There's I didn't get into it, but there seems to be some very heavy-hitting scholarship that is excluded from academic conferences, of course, that points to, that, that puts some pretty big holes in the view of the historicity of, the, of Jesus' story and Jesus. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I don't know. But from what I've seen, I haven't looked into it. Come 2019, from Michael Lockwood, who doesn't say anything about Apollonius, and really is saying... Christianity was a branch of Buddhism. <laughs> Early Christianity is some kind of branch fork off of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm-hmm. But he's got a lot of scholarship. Shows a whole lot of scholars that poke a hell, that put some pretty, done some pretty big damage to the certainty of the historicity of Jesus or the, the life of Jesus, the life story. So things are kind of uh, falling apart here at the end. 
So then finally, this quote from Tsekali said, There's not a word or better. There is no longer a word in the works of Flavius Josephus about the Messiah, the Christ crucified by Pontius Pilate, except for a crude interpolation quite obviously false. The silence of Josephus is not due to disdain or studied neutrality. And so that would be massively counterattacked by Christian, you know, scholars and um, defenders of the faith who will weigh in and say, of course, there's much in, or that passage, that testimonium, they gave it a name. The, tes- the passage of Flavius Josephus about Yeshua, they gave it a name called testimonium. Okay. Uh, I'm sure the defenders that uh, would say that statement, those, that passage of Josephus we call the testimonium, is true is right, it has not been tampered with, it is the original. Or it's not the original, but the original didn't, you know, is good enough or close enough to this. Meanwhile, this guy is saying that there's, that, that Flavius Josephus' uh, testimonium is, a fa- is fa- fake, it's a crude interpol- interpolation. Okay, that's his view. I don't know, I haven't looked into it. And... One more, two more. In an 8th century Slavonic edition of Josephus's book, so now we're centuries out, such an interpolation occurs, meaning a sort of add-in, an insertion, at referring to a certain Jesus, son of Joseph, and which covers only a passing paragraph, the brevity of which clearly reveals its fraudulent origin, for if Jesus were mentioned at all, much more space would have been devoted to him. That's a not a bad point. It, those who would say the passage of Josephus, they call the testimonium that they say proves or shows historical reference to Yeshua first century, um, might want to consider or, or ought to be asked, if Yeshua was very significant, why is that all that Josephus mentioned about him? He was king of the Jews. He was an important person, wasn't he? Not in the first century, only later. Hmm. Why was so little space devoted to him by Josephus? Only one paragraph, which um, this you know this side of this camp calls an interpolation. Why only that? Why only that? Why did Flavius Josephus write only one short paragraph that they call the testimonium and nothing more? Why? if he was that important. And then I'm sure there are arguments about that, like, you know, they excluded it, or he was not well-known, or, you know, something, something. So, but it is an important or an interesting point. Uh, why only a paragraph, if it was even an original paragraph, or the paragraph really is original? And then he goes on, and coincident with such interpolations of early authors, meaning coincident with the what he's calling Christian insertions, or what I would call Christian, what others call Christian insertions, here called interpolations. <laughs> Sorry, uh, precision is useful. This is all Blu-ray play. Uh, along with that, interpolations, occurred the censorship of all books making reference to Apollonius, whose name was omitted or abbreviated. I don't know what basis he has for that, other than the fact that there's only the Vita. Thus, in the original Pauline epistles, which we have reason to believe originally had Apollonius as their central figure and were written by him, 
His name is abbreviated to Apollos or Paul or Paul. And this is a, you know, another whack, another another two by four on the head. Um, the people, some of the people who believe there was no Yeshua and the the Christ, Jesus Christ biography is a um, composite significantly borrowed from Apollonius and others actually have the view that Apollonius is Paul. <laughs> Meaning Paul, the story of Paul is borrowed from Paul, Apollo, Apollonius. That the story of Paul you see, it's not that, you know, was there a real Paul and a real Jesus? I think their view would be there wasn't an historical Jesus nor an historical Paul. There was Apollonius. And then there was uh, political demand uh, to fashion a, a story. And the story of Yeshua composite, was a composite borrowed from Apollonius and others. And the story of Paul was a composite borrowed from Apollonius and others. And the name Paul was Apollos or Paul or Apollonius shortened to Paul. Paul. Okay, that must make some people steam out the ears. <laughs> I am not a party to the conflict of opinion or the war. I am a, I am a Tacitus. I'm just Tacitus. I try to be Tacitus. Tacitus. Meaning, don't I just try to put it to put it to put it to you put it in a tight way for you to consider. But it's really uh, this is a war, baby, and so right. Their view is that Paul is a composite story based on Apollos or Apollonius as well, to some degree. Meaning borrowed to some degree, and that the author of the letters was Apollonius. Were they really letters? <laughs> I don't know. This is why, this is why censorship exists. Because when you start to ask a question, you find ten more questions and ten more things that actually you don't have certainty on. That there is a sage, there is sagely conduct. Yes, there is a god. Yes, there's good and evil. Yes, there are paths. Yes, there is purpose. Yes, there is justice. Yes, there is divine plan. Yes. There is the attainment of the sage and the yani and the the position of a great saint. Sainthood is possible. Uh, sanctification is possible. Enlightenment is possible. Um, so you know, <laughs> avoid evil, do good, cultivate good, and purify mind. Tamapada, the heart. And likewise, uh, uh, Buddha Dasa knows. So, don't forget, you know, that there is reality, a spiritual, divine, you know, we're living in a sacred space. Creation is sacred space. It is the manifestation of divine light, or all is of, uh, all that we experience is, is divine light. The goal is to become at one with the source of that divine light. Whether Paul was Apollonius or Yeshua was uh, Isis Krishna, 
um, that's secondary, you know, find the heart. And so then finally, that last paragraph, that Apollo, he writes, that Apollos, Apollos, conceded by no less an authority than Encyclopedia Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica to be an abbreviation of Apollonius. So even the big boys say, uh, the big trusted Encyclopedia Britannica, like the New York Times, <laughs> says that, yes, indeed, really, Apollos was an abbreviation of Apollonius that Apollos was the real author of the epistle to the Hebrews, falsely attributed to Paul, was the opinion of Martin Luther and other eminent scholars. And if Apollonius wrote some of the so-called Pauline epistles, there's a possibility he may have written others. And this guy says, and in fact, all. That's something to look into, and that's where we end for today. Did Martin Luther say that Apollos, Apollonius was the author of the epistle to the Hebrews? Did Martin Luther say that? Mm-hmm. Yow! That's why he must have been a dangerous fellow. So anyway, that's where we'll end for today. I don't know if that's so. It might be. If it is, that's a heavy fact. <laughs> the fact that he believes that. That's all. That he's a big shot, Martin Luther, I believe. I don't know really much about him, but he's kind of a heavy hitter in church history if he indeed believed that Apollos, as abbreviation of Apollonius, was the real author of the epistle to the Hebrews, meaning Pauline equals Apollonius writing. Uh, if Martin Luther believed that, that's kind of heavy. So that's it for today. Heavy, heavy. I hope you're enjoying. It's the uh, <laughs> journey through the centuries and an examination of um, historicity and myth-making in Christianity and um, the limits of human knowledge and honesty. And um, uh, good to have a uh, bright blue Blu-ray. So take good care. See you next time. And good night.